Section 4 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Gaius Gracchus, Part 1. In studying the career of Tiberius Gracchus, we were investigating a very simple phenomenon. The great tribune was aiming at nothing more than the redress of social and economic ills and had no thought of reconstructing the roman constitution when the provisions of that constitution stood in his way he recklessly overrode them but when they chanced to suit his purpose he utilized their most tiresome and absurd formalities to the utmost limit it was characteristic of the short-sighted tiberius to press the tribunitial authority to its most exaggerated extension one month by shutting up the law courts and the treasury, while in the next he struck at the very roots of that authority and taught men to despise it by illegally deposing a tribune by the vote of the Comitia. Whether such conduct was likely to strengthen the position of future tribunes, he does not seem for one moment to have reflected. But as a substitute for the old constitution which he was so ruthlessly breaking up, Tiberius had nothing to put forward when we examine his programme the list of reforms that he intended to bring forward in his second tribunate we find that it does not include any scheme for rearranging the machinery of the state but only certain proposals to change points of detail such as the composition of juries the conditions of military service and perhaps the limits of the franchise there was no attempt to settle the great problems of sovereignty and imperial administration which were the really pressing questions of the day apparently he was prepared to entrust the unwieldy public assembly with the details of the governance of the empire for which it was even more unfitted than was the oligarchic senate but in spite of tiberius's short-sightedness the after-effects of his career were such as to make constitutional changes likely and even necessary. He had broken up forever the tacit agreement between Senate and people, by which alone the clumsy machinery of the Roman administration could be kept working. He had shown that the Comitia, if galvanized into activity by a reckless and restless tribune, was capable of reasserting its old theoretical powers and of passing laws in defiance of the senate and in opposition to the senate's dearest interests no state can contain two sovereigns and it had now to be settled which was really supreme at rome the senate according to the practice of the last two centuries or the people as theory required it was only necessary that a capable leader should again come forward to put himself at the head of the democratic party and then the struggle for sovereignty must force itself to the front as the main problem of the day leaders of a sort were not long wanting but at first they were mere noisy agitators who only stirred the surface of things gaius papirius carbo and marcus fulvius flaccus the immediate successors of the elder gracchus were not men of mark or ability their doings had little practical importance Carbo tried to pass a declaratory law to the effect that tribunes might legally be re-elected year after year, B.C. 131. He failed, 
fell away from his democratic beliefs and relapsed for reasons obscure but probably discreditable into the ranks of the optimates a few years later however the bill was passed by other hands flaccus who was a genuine enthusiast but fickle of purpose and lacking in perseverance began to meddle with another and a much more important question the enfranchisement of the italian allies he brought in a bill for this very just and wise purpose saw it blocked by the tribunicial veto and then instead of persevering with it suddenly left rome and plunged into a series of campaigns in southern gaul b c one twenty five the senate deliberately threw the chance of military glory in his way by assigning him the gallic province he could not resist the opportunity and disappeared from home politics for two years the only practical result of his agitation was the rebellion of one isolated italian city Fregoli, which was crushed with ease by the praetor apimius b c one twenty five to one twenty four ten years passed away from the death of tiberius and then there arose a man who knew his own mind who accurately gauged the problems of the time and saw that not only the social and economic difficulties of rome but also the question of sovereignty must be faced if the democratic party was to triumph gaius gracchus was nine years younger than his brother tiberius and had been too young to aid him in his schemes though not too young to be appointed one of the famous triumvirs of the land commission that family party which had given so much offence to the optimates when the powers of the commission were gradually whittled away and its judicial duties assigned to the consuls who simply refused to discharge them gaius sank for a moment into obscurity but it was not for long like every other young roman of good family and active spirit he put himself in the regular political career and sued for the quaestorship as the first step in the cursus honorum once started he was bound to go far gaius was not a mere enthusiast and humanitarian like his brother he was a clever many-sided wary man who saw all the dangers of the task he was going to take in hand and faced them under the stimulus of ambition and revenge rather than from benevolence and patriotism we shall see that all his career was coloured by these motives a fact which accounts for the many deliberately immoral measures that are to be found in his legislation for some years after his brother's death he took no very prominent part in public affairs yet he did not keep himself so secluded and obscure as plutarch makes out we know for example that he made an oration in favour of carbo's bill concerning re-election of the tribunate and that he spoke against the detestable law of junius pennus b c one twenty six which expelled italian residents from rome gaius took the quaestorship in the year of the law of pennus and was sent to serve in sardinia under the proconsul aurelius orestes he was kept in that unhealthy and uninteresting land for two years as his office was prolonged for a second term owing to the jealousy of the senate who were glad to keep away from the capital one who bore the dreaded name of gracchus thus as it chanced gaius was absent from italy during the franchise agitation of fulvius flaccus and the revolt of fregoli 
this fact did not prevent the optimates from accusing him of having had a guilty knowledge of the intentions of the rebel city he won golden opinions for his efficient financial administration in sardinia as well as for his personal integrity he was the only quaestor as he himself said who went out with a full purse and came back with an empty one after returning from sardinia in b c one twenty four gaius stood for the tribunate for the ensuing year and obtained the office without much trouble so popular was his name among the multitude the only effect of a bitter opposition to him started by the optimates was that he was returned fourth on the list instead of at the head of the poll when once launched on the sea of domestic politics gaius atoned by his unceasing activity for the long delay that he had made before plunging into the troubled waters he was the most restless and eager of men beside him we are told his brother tiberius had always appeared mild moderate and conciliatory these are hardly the epithets that we should apply to the author of the confiscation of the domain land and the deposer of octavius but the comparison enables us to understand the terrible vehemence of his younger brother gaius had no moments of rest or quiet after he had once put himself forward as the friend of the people his activity was militant and aggressive his eloquence bitter and vituperative he was always working himself up into the fine fury that ends in hysterics we are told that he was aware of the fact and that when he came down to the comitia to speak he stationed a discreet retainer with a pitch-pipe behind him whose duty was to give a warning note whenever the oration was tending to become a screech unfortunately like the archbishop of granada in lesage's story he did not invariably accept the criticism of his underling he was always on the edge of overemphasis first of all romans as we read he strode from one end of the rostra to another while speaking and cast his toga from off his shoulders by the vehemence of his action his enemies compared him to cleon the blustering demagogue of ancient athens it is strange that a man of such a high-strung nature should have kept back from politics so long his own explanation of the abstention was that he felt that he was well-nigh the last of his race save himself and his young son the male line of the gracchi had died out though his father the consul had left behind him no less than twelve children cicero used to tell the story that gaius had sworn after his brother's disastrous end to hold aloof from the political life but that his resolution was broken down by a vision he thought as he slept that tiberius stood before him and cried why this long lingering gaius there is no alternative the fates have decreed the same career for each of us to spend our lives and meet our deaths in vindicating the rights of the roman people dreams are often the reflection of the subjects on which the mind has been perpetually brooding in the waking hours and the tale well expresses the blending of motives in the mind of gaius he felt that it was his duty to avenge his brother and he was deeply stirred by seeing the democratic party mute and helpless for lack of a leader and a programme when he felt that he could so easily supply both these wants ambition and revenge were probably at the bottom of his resolve to a greater measure than he himself was aware whatever was the spark 
that kindled this eager and susceptible temperament into a flame there can be no doubt that from the moment of his election to the tribunate gaius displayed the restless energy of a fanatic he took in hand no less a scheme than the absorption into his own hands of the whole administration foreign and domestic of the roman empire his plan was to overrule the senate by the simple device of keeping perpetual possession of the tribunate a thing which was now perfectly legal owing to the law which had been passed since his brother's death as tribune he would bring in an unending series of laws and decrees dealing directly with all the departments of state so that the senate should have no right to meddle with anything if the sovereign people claimed and used its power to settle every detail of the governance of the empire there would be no room for senatorial interference Momsen has maintained that this scheme was a deliberate anticipation of the monarchy of the caesars and that gaius by proposing to hold perpetual office as the sole guide and arbiter of those at whose fiat the assembly should pass laws was practically intending to make himself tyrant of rome this however is unfair to gracchus it would be more true to say that he aimed at occupying at rome somewhat the same position that pericles had once held at athens the athenian had been strategos year after year and had guided for half a lifetime the votes of the ecclesia yet no one save comic poets called him a tyrant he was prostates ton daemon as the greeks phrased it but that is a very different thing from holding a tyranny what gaius gracchus craved was much the same position but he had not the calm wisdom of pericles and a man of his vehement and reckless temper was certain ere long to fall out with his supporters and wreck his career we have said that there was a strong element of revenge among the motives which stirred up gracchus to put himself at the head of the democratic party his first two laws display it very clearly one of them was a declaratory bill which re-enacted the old constitutional principle that any magistrate who in his year of office had put to death or banished roman citizens without a trial should be called to account before the comitia this measure was aimed at the consul propilius who though he had not been concerned in the riot where tiberius met his end had subsequently seized and executed many of the reformers partisans the ex-magistrate recognized the intent of the law and was perfectly conscious of the flagrant illegality of what he had done ten years before and of the probability of his conviction for high treason he fled out of italy into exile without waiting to be indicted his fate was well deserved for the conduct of his party had been abominable after the death of tiberius further executions had not been required and if they had been there was no excuse for not proceeding according to proper forms of trial but the second law of gaius was by no means so righteous it was aimed at the perfectly respectable and blameless tribune octavius who had opposed tiberius on the question of the agrarian law and had been deposed by him in such an illegal fashion the bill now brought forward was to the effect that any magistrate whom the roman people had removed from office for any cause was to be for the future incapable of holding office again this was a mere persecution for octavius had done nothing more than exercise a right which he undoubtedly possessed 
in a conscientious if somewhat obstinate fashion all our authorities agree that there was no ground for believing that he had been actuated by spite or corrupt motives it would appear that gaius found that public opinion was not with him when he attacked octavius or that he grew ashamed on second thoughts of this vindictive measure at any rate he dropped the bill announcing that he did so in deference to the wishes of his mother cornelia at which as we are told the people showed themselves perfectly satisfied the other legislative proposals of the first tribunate of gaius gracchus are of very various kinds covering all sorts of different spheres of imperial and domestic administration they plainly show that the vehement young tribune thought nothing too small or too great to be dealt with by the assembly under his own superintendence as prime minister of the people it is unfortunate that the historians on whom we have to rely for information do not enable us to make out the exact sequence in which the various laws were passed we have to deal with them in classes rather than in strict order of time in some ways the most important of all was a bill which in spite of all that the advocates of gaius can allege appears to have been simply and solely intended to commend him to the populace as the true friend who had once and for all filled their stomachs he proposed a lex frumentaria which provided that corn the tithe corn of the sicilian cities stored in the granaries of the state should be sold to any citizen who applied for it at six and one-third asses promodius each man was allowed to buy five modii a month in order to prevent swindling and speculation the buyer had to visit the granary himself and receive the corn in person thus the bill profited the urban mob alone since they were the only citizens who lived near enough to the fount of supply to be able to turn it to account now six and a third asses promodius was as it would appear a rate which represented about one-half the normal price of corn in the roman market during an average year the measure was equivalent therefore to the free gift of half his daily loaf to every urban voter the proletariat thought the bill a most admirable one and its author was hailed wherever he appeared as the true friend of the people he had appealed to them in a manner which even the simplest could understand and their gratitude reminds us of the famous cry of the portuguese army when it saluted its commander with the shout long live marshal beresford who takes care of our bellies the voters of the Sabura were blameless they knew no better when they aided their leader to carry through his most unhappy bill but gaius must bear a very heavy burden of reproach for this miserable bid for popularity not only had he devised the surest means of demoralizing the urban multitude but he had also dealt the last death-blow to italian agriculture more than any other single man he was responsible for the growth of that mass of paupers asking for nothing but panem et circenses which in a few generations was to represent the sovereign people of rome when once the indigent multitude had begun to expect food from the state at an artificial price it was not likely that they would stop clamouring till they got it for nothing the demagogues who pandered to them by continually increasing the dole were the legitimate offspring of gaius gracchus the case against him is made even worse by the fact that at the same moment when he began to distribute the tithe corn at half price 
he also made a great parade of reenacting his brother's agrarian law he declared that the restoration of the old yeoman class was as dear to his heart as it had been to that of tiberius he restored the full powers of the land commission for the distribution of what remained of the public domains and commenced once more to plant out farmers on small allotments this was sheer economic lunacy for how could farming pay in central italy if the state entered the field as a competitor against the local agriculturalist and swamped the roman market with corn sold at half price if gaius really supposed that it was any use to send forth new farmers at the moment when he was underbidding them by the institution of the corn dole he must have been an idiot if he set the land commission to work with a full knowledge that all its efforts must be futile he must have been a deliberate impostor knowing the cleverness of the man we are forced to conclude that the latter alternative is the nearer to the truth he probably reenacted his brother's law for purely political reasons not because he thought that it would have any good effect but because it looked well in the democratic programme his real scheme for relieving the economic pressure was of quite a different kind he intended to dispatch the ruined italian farmers overseas to form new colonies in the provinces where their efforts would not be sterilized by the unnatural condition of the local roman market this was the true way of relieving the distress of the yeoman class they could not hold their own in italy without protection which it was certain that gaius's friends in the urban multitude would never grant them but on the fertile soil of africa they might do well enough accordingly gaius set his colleague the tribune rubrius to introduce a bill for the founding of a colony on a very large scale there were to be allotments for no less than six thousand citizens on the deserted site of ancient carthage if the settlers failed to maintain themselves as agriculturalists they would have a good second chance of succeeding as traders for it was inevitable that some great town must grow up again at a point of the mediterranean so central and so well suited for maritime traffic so far gaius was right within two centuries the restored carthage was to be one of the greatest cities of the empire but it was not to call agracchus its founder other colonies were to be planted in italy itself the places chosen were tarentum and capua these new settlements can never have been intended to live on agriculture they were clearly designed to become what each of them had been in the past great urban centres of trade the old capua and tarentum had not died natural deaths the one had come to a violent end because it had in the hour of danger deserted rome during the hannibalic war the other though not quite so harshly treated in a political sense had been practically ruined by its protracted sieges and the forcible diversion of its commerce to the rival port of brundisium now capua was an open village without even a legal existence and tarentum a decayed fishing haven but gaius thought that there was an opening for a great market town in the midst of the campanian plain and for a flourishing port on the ionian sea if strengthened by a draft of roman citizens the cities might rise again if only from the mere convenience of their sites for the colonial schemes of gaius both in italy and in africa we have nothing but praise he had hit upon the true method of relieving the misery of the proletariat and if he had been enabled to carry out his designs 
there would have been an opening provided for every citizen who was willing to work and disliked the miserable life of the dole-fed pauper there are other laws to be placed to his credit which show that when his mind was not warped by revenge or ambition he was a true statesman of the first rank one was destined to complete the road system of italy which had grown up very much at haphazard and still left many regions practically isolated from the main arteries of communication admiring biographers describe to us the excellence of his roads drawn in a straight line through the country wonderfully built with a bed of binding gravel below and a paved chaussee above when a ravine was met it was filled up with rubble when a watercourse it was spanned by a bridge levelled and brought to a perfect parallel the high road represented a regular and even elegant prospect for mile after mile there were pillars of stone to mark the distances and directions and horse-blocks at convenient spots to enable the traveller to mount with ease another law that was obviously beneficial and had been long called for was one for relieving the rank and file of the army from the burden of providing themselves with clothing in the old days when the citizen soldier spent a few months in the field at no great distance from his home and was disbanded at the coming of winter the custom had been natural and reasonable but to expect a conscript sent for six years to spain to keep himself clothed from his modest pay was absurd not only was this boon secured to the soldiery but other laws of gracchus mitigated the severity of conscription securing that no man should be forced to serve before he had attained the legal age and reducing the number of years for which he could be kept on continuous service less happily inspired was another bill which seems to have given the soldiers at the wars the right to appeal against any sentence of death passed by their general such a provision would certainly prove detrimental to discipline there are occasions when it is absolutely necessary that the commander should be able to punish mutiny or cowardice on the spot by the extreme penalty and to allow an appeal against him is preposterous as a matter of fact the law was not always observed there are cases known long after this time in which military executions took place on the largest scale crassus in the servile war once decimated a whole cohort for gross cowardice in the field but the most important of all the legislative enactments of gaius gracchus were those by which he set to work to modify the constitution by cutting down the powers of the senate his chief device for this purpose was to raise up a new corporation in the state with interests which should be so different from those of the senate that it might be trusted to act as a check on that body it was in the equestrian order that he found the materials for this counterpoise in early days the equites were simply the cavalry of the roman army every man with the equestrian census had to serve as a horse-soldier whether he were senator landholder or capitalist but by b c one twenty three the equites had become a very anomalous body they had practically ceased to have a military organization the last occasion on which we hear of them taking the field as a separate corps was in the siege of numantia the roman burgess cavalry had been entirely superseded by squadrons raised from among the allies nor did the equites any longer number senators in their ranks since b c one twenty nine no senator could be a knight the body now consisted of those men of wealth who had not been called up to sit in the senate 
it was heterogeneous containing two very different classes of members the more reputable half of it comprised the larger landowners of non-senatorial rank throughout roman italy the other half was composed of the great capitalists merchants and contractors of the city the urban and the rural knights had few common privileges or functions the only occasions when they had occasion to meet was when the censor called them up to his quinquennial review or when the equestrian centuries had to give their votes in the comitia cantoriata they had very little cohesion or esprit de corps gaius resolved to make this wealthy but ill-compacted class into a corporation with common honorary rights and practical advantages the part of it with which he had mainly to deal was the capitalist class in the city for just as the urban proletariat being always on the spot came to style itself the roman people so the speculators and contractors of the capital came to speak of themselves as if they were the whole equestrian body the most important of the laws by which gracchus designed to sow discord between the senate and the equites was that by which the control of the law courts was transferred from the one to the other body hitherto senators alone were placed upon the album judicum and allowed to serve as jurymen the results had been discreditable of late years and in particular the provincials complained that a senatorial jury would never convict a defaulting governor for embezzlement and oppression there had been a particularly bad case of the sort just before gaius received the tribunate manlius aquilius governor of asia had been acquitted in spite of the fact that the provincials proved against him a number of scandalous acts of misgovernment his acquittal had been secured by wholesale bribery and the decision had been so iniquitous that the reputation of senatorial juries had sunk to a very low ebb it was easy therefore to attack them on high moral grounds and gaius's talent for vituperative eloquence had free scope his line of argument may be guessed from a fragment of one of his speeches against the senate which has survived no senator troubles himself about public affairs for nothing he observed and in the case before us an arbitration concerning territories in asia minor the honourable gentlemen may be divided into three classes those who voted aye have been bribed by one claimant those who voted no by the other and those who did not vote at all by both and these last are the most cunning of all for they have persuaded each party that they abstained in his interest saying that if they had voted at all they must have done so for the other side the senatorial juries had undoubtedly been most unsatisfactory but the equestrian juries which gaius substituted for them were even worse there is no reason to believe that the tribune was unaware of this fact for in reference to this law he is recorded to have remarked that he had cast daggers into the forum with which the two orders should lacerate each other clearly his purpose was to brew mischief for the benefit of the senate rather than to secure any advantage for the citizens or the provincials to put the control of the law courts into the hands of the urban knights for the rural knights did not count had the worst possible effect the typical equus was a good deal more of a money-lender speculator and financial agent than of a mere merchant his interests were as much opposed to those of the provincials as they were to those of the senate 
his main wish was to exploit the empire for the benefit of his own class it is difficult to construct any parallel for modern times which can bring home to the reader the exact meaning of the surrender of justice into the hands of the equites some faint adumbration of the results may be realized by imagining what might happen in england if all juries had to be chosen exclusively from members of the stock exchange whenever any financial question might be in dispute there would be a tendency even in honest men to decide in favour of their own class interests the roman publicanus was little influenced either by delicacy or by regard for public opinion the result of giving him judicial omnipotence was merely that he abused it for his own interest rather more than his senatorial predecessors had done the equites says appian soon adopted the senator's system of bribery and no sooner had they experienced the pleasures of unlimited gains than they proceeded to strive after them far more shamelessly than had ever been done before they used to set up suborned accusers against the senators they not merely tyrannized over them in the law courts but openly insulted them the old grievance had been that bad provincial governors escaped punishment for their misdeeds owing to the misplaced tenderness of their friends on the jury the new grievance was that any one who did not play into the hands of the equites and grant them whatever they asked was prosecuted and condemned however blameless his conduct might have been it took some years for the system of blackmailing to reach its perfection but what it grew to may be judged from the case of rutilius rufus this virtuous administrator had set himself to protect the provincials of asia from the extortions of the publicani he came home bringing with him the blessings of the whole land but on his return the financiers had him accused of all things in the world of embezzlement and extortion he was promptly condemned though he brought representatives of every class of the provincials to bear witness that he was the best friend they had ever known and retired to live in honoured exile among the very people whom he was supposed to have oppressed End of section four